Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Hello, hello, blessed epiphany. Happy birthday, St. Joan of Arc. What a full Friday we have for you. It was on this day in January of 1412 that the Maid of Orléans was born. She is the only person of either sex who has ever held supreme command of the military forces of a nation at the age of 17. Our church is so amazing, isn't it? And she, of course, is the patroness of France and of soldiers. It was beautiful to hear Kale talk about St. Andre Bassett. Of course, we are looking at the beauty of the solemnity of the Epiphany and thinking about St. Joan of Arc here, born in 1412, and her story captivating non-Christians, of course, Catholics, Protestants like Mark Twain alike. And she also happens to be the patroness of my mom, my mom, Joan. And my mom and I went to Mass this morning. It was nice to have that conversation about St. Joan and she said being named after Joan of Arc in the 40s, it was one of the top 10 girl names at that time. And then it was in the top 50 up until the 60s. And I looked it up today to see where it ranked in terms of the names. Do you have any guesses? It's definitely not in the top 50 or the top 10. It is listed today at number 1,544 in popularity in the United States. And I'm thinking, we need to bring it back. I know there are a lot of Jones that are selected for confirmation, and that's the saint they choose. But what a noble, what a beautiful name indeed. And Joan of Arc really ties into today's show about the life of Pope Benedict XVI, because as we will hear over and over again, he emphasizes the need of saints to change the world, that true revolution comes in reforming ourselves and conforming to Christ. And Joan of Arc, of course, an example of that par excellence. My name is Brooke Taylor, back with you during this time of blessed maternity leave for Timory. Mom and baby girl are doing great, by the way. They spent about five days in the NICU. Everyone thankfully back home now and hopefully <laughs> catching up on some much needed sleep. But she has been posting updates periodically. So especially on Instagram and on Twitter, I know you can also follow there. But more than anything, thank you so much for your prayers and we will keep you posted. But I'm so happy to be with you. And on today's show, Joseph Pierce is with us. We will be discussing his book, 
Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith. And I'm pleased to say that he agreed to spend the whole hour with us. And I think certainly Benedict merits a full show and beyond that. And even with that limitation, we will do our best to give you a robust picture of a man who Mr. Pierce asserts will be known in history as one of the greatest popes. And it was in this uh, of April 2008, I was going to say this day, but it was April 2008 during his apostolic journey to the United States where he delivered remarks on the South Lawn of the White House. And what an opportunity today to go back and revisit that entire video, to not only see him standing there, but to hear him speak in English and the beauty of his voice. And I want to share just a brief, it's a very brief but potent clip of a portion of his remarks that he made on the White House next to President Bush at the time there on the South Lawn. Take a listen. Democracy can only flourish, as your founding fathers realized, when political leaders and those whom they represent are guided by truth and bring the wisdom born of firm moral principle to decisions affecting the life and future of the nation. What a quote. Democracy can only flourish as your founding fathers realized when political leaders and those whom they represent are guided by truth and bring the wisdom born of firm moral principle to decisions affecting the life and future of the nation. He delivered that message on his 81st birthday. And during that apostolic journey, he also visited Ground Zero. He prayed there. He reflected. He addressed the United Nations. He addressed the bishops of the United States, in which he did not shy away from the sexual abuse scandals. He said, quote, it had been very badly handled. And he also met with a group of abuse victims at that time. And this would be the only time in 2008, that April journey, that he would ever visit the United States. And what I found interesting is there was a Pew Research study done, which showed that after the visit, 61% of Americans identified as having a favorable impression of Pope Benedict XVI, which was up from 52% before his visit. And one commentator, I went back and I was pulling from the different interviews and journalists, one was, I had the impression he was a harsh enforcer, but he was really quite gentle. And I wanted to lead with that because I thought the analysis was so interesting in how pervasive and perhaps effective the polemics had been, the mischaracterizations. And even now we hear different pictures of who Pope Benedict really was or was not. And so that's the question. There are a lot of caricatures and we've heard assertions along spectrums of uh, different extremes from those who say he was a staunch traditionalist and reformer to those who have called him a modernist. So with clarity and charity here to take us into the holy heart and mind of Joseph Ratzinger is the author of Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith, Joseph Pierce. Welcome to the show, Mr. Pierce. Oh, it's a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. I, I want to just give a quick bio for those who may not already be familiar with you. Joseph Pierce, director of book publishing for the Augustan Institute. He is a renowned biographer whose books include his autobiography, Race with the Devil, From Racial Hatred to Radical Love. In addition, he has written Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Tolkien, and many more compelling titles from Hilaire Bullock and you can to uh, The Lord of the Rings, and you can find more by visiting his website, 
J Pierce, which is P-E-A-R-C-E dot co. And also we can access your weekly blog there as well. Right, Joseph? Yes, indeed. If anyone wants to keep up with what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm writing, where I'm speaking, etc., just go to that website, jpierce.co. Great. Thank you. We want to talk about your book, Benedict the Sixteenth, Defender of the Faith. And in the prologue, you share it's the sweetest, most endearing story about this moment when then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was elected to the papacy. You recount watching television at the campus of Ave Maria University, along with Father Joseph Fessio. And I want to just read now because it's such great theater of the mind. And this is what you say. You take us there. Everyone in the room erupted with sheer joy and jubilation. This is with the announcement of Habimus Papam. And you say, the dean and I found ourselves doing an impromptu jig, leaping around in each other's arms in a most indecorous manner. Father Fessio broke down with uncontrollable tears of joy. And you go on to say that Father Fessio, who is the founder of Ignatius Press, was also a former student of Ratzinger's? Yeah, correct. And and not just a former student of Ratzinger's, but but, but Joseph Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, had something called the Skolakoits, um, which were basically former students, uh, and he would get together with them, it, even after he became Pope, every year. And um, Father Fezio was one of that, that, that select group of students that would meet with him every year. So he wasn't just a student of, uh, of uh, Pope Benedict, but was actually a, a friend. Um, and uh, if you like, someone that, that, that Pope Benedict uh, trusted implicitly. And in some ways, I mean, you dedicate the book to him as well, to Father Fessio. So obviously, it seems like it was not only a tribute to Pope Benedict XVI, but to Father Fessio as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Father Fessio has uh, been a great supporter of my own work. He, my own books were published in, in the, my early books were published by HarperCollins and publishers in the UK, but the American publisher was Ignatius Press. Uh, Father Fezio has been a giant in, in terms of, of, of spreading the faith um, uh, through pub publishing. And, uh, you know, he's a disciple of uh, Pope uh, Benedict and Cardinal Ratzinger prior to that. Um, and, uh, and really, you know, for me, uh, it's, it's a tribute to Father Fezio as well as a tribute uh, to the life and legacy of Pope Benedict, the book, uh, uh, Benedict XVI, that I wrote that book. Um, so, yeah, I'm obviously delighted to be able to dedicate the book to that great and holy Jesuit. And what a beautiful moment. We go from this extreme joy, and I think for, for all of us who can recall where we were and what we were doing when that moment was announced, we go back right there with that rejoicing and jubilation as well. But then, in short order, the tides change, and you write, the enemies of orthodoxy decried the new German shepherd as God's Rottweiler. So you are a biography, which is a task that's very daunting alone to take the life of Benedict XVI. But here then it also seems like you are a litigator to to not only tell his story, but to defend him. So is that the mission and was that your approach? Yes, and uh, it's an unapologetic apologia, if you like, for Pope Benedict, is that, that this, I wanted to be uh, this uh, a defender of this great defender of the faith. And, and, and I wanted to, if you like, stand behind him or stand beside him uh, to defend him from these unjust and malicious and untrue attacks uh, upon him. You know, I think I say in the book that, that, that you know, that basically the people that accused uh, this gentle man, and he's a gentle man in both senses of the word, a, a gentleman, 
one who uh, who knows how to behave decorously, who will never stab you in the back, but also a man who's very gentle, has that gentleness. This he's a gentle, meek, mild mannered person, like everybody's uh, ideal grandfather, which is why he wins hearts over when people actually see him rather than read about him. And I, I, I wanted I wanted to actually to, to pay my own defending him. And for me, and I think I say it in the book, that the people that attack him are the wolves in sheep's clothing, or even, sadly, sometimes the wolves in shepherd's clothing, who don't like uh, the German shepherd who's guarding the sheep. And, 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 and that is what it's really about. We're going to get into that. I also want to mention, right in the beginning, since we're at the front of the book, Scott Hahn, he writes the foreword of the book, and in it he credits Pope Benedict XVI for essentially leading him home to the Catholic Church. He said, Thus I see perhaps for the first time on paper the image of the most remarkable man I have met, a man whose books led me gently but inexorably to the Catholic Church. And you think of the amount of intellectual giants who were convinced and converted by Joseph Ratzinger. It's really astonishing. Do you think that his contribution to Christian theology and to the church in general is as understood? And appreciated as it ought to be? Well, I think that it's always a problem, and I think it's a natural problem, and it's fair enough, that when things are too close to us, you know, it, we're sort of myopic. We can't sort of see them clearly. It's too close. Um, that we actually need to, 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 to be able to distance ourselves from it. But I am obviously uh, and absolutely convinced that, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, he'll be seen as one of the great theologians. And I, I, I'm, I'm happy to prophesy um, be, being being daring and reckless, uh, that he will be a doctor of the church, and the, the, he, so so as with as with his great predecessor, Saint John Paul II, and and we do need to remember, of course, that these two men were the dynamic duo that steered the church back uh, from the from the, uh, the 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 madness of the 1970s, which beset the church. Um, that it was those two together that 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 Saint John Paul II that he adopted, if you like, um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was his right hand man as as the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and those two together steered the, the church on the on the right course. But in one sense, at least, I think that Ratzinger is even uh, better than the Saint John Paul II. Saint John Paul II is also a great theologian and a great philosopher, but he's also difficult to read. Whereas um, Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger and Pope Benedict have this great ability that for me, uh, I, I'm always mi mindful of, uh, of C.S. Lewis. Now, this, this ability to take very difficult, complex, complicated, philosophical and theological concepts and, and express them and explicate them in a way which is understandable to the ordinary, uh, interested Catholic in the pew. Uh, that's a great gift, not merely to know what you're talking about, but to be able to communicate that knowledge in a digestible form to people that don't know as much as you do. And, and you know, Lewis has that gift uh, to a great degree, and, and absolutely Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, have that gift also to a great degree. I have to say, it's been one of the great gifts of this past week to really pour over the words of your book, Benedict, Defender of the Faith, and it's by Joseph Pierce out now. I really encourage everyone. It's such a treasure to have. And you think of the texts, the, the apostolic exhortations, the books, everything from Space Salvi to the different things Jesus of Nazareth that he wrote, and the, the intellectual depth, the theological power, and 
the the absolute radiance of truth. And I just was thinking of generally, you know, what our kids perhaps might be learning unless they're homeschooled or have a classical education and just the poverty of what is out there because had I not been invited to really read your text and go further and dig deeper, I don't know that I would have unless, you know, for fun, people are going to the Vatican website and reading these documents. Certainly they're out and there are books on the liturgy and on different aspects of what he's written about. But this is what I think is unique, particularly about your book, is you take us into his life, really taking us into these wonderful gems of what he's written and invite us into something deeper but one area that we have, I mean, we could spend the rest of the hour talking on is what you referenced in regards to a bit of the chaos of the 1970s. And one of the areas of debate for sure in clarifying his role, I guess, the misunderstandings, things that happened and unfolded after Vatican II. And it's easy to go into a very long odyssey because there's so much to explore and clarify. But in a general sense, what do you think are the most important points for people to understand about his role as it relates to Vatican II and the years after? Well, the key thing is that there's a very big difference between the spirit of Vatican II and the so-called spirit of Vatican II. In other words, what the Vatican II documents actually say and what people did in their name are there's an abyss that separates those two things, and the abyss is as wide as, the, as that which separates heaven from hell. In other words, that, that we, we, you can defend what the Second Vatican Council taught. You can't defend what people did in, in the name of its so-called spirit in the 1970s. And one of the, one of the key things about Pope Benedict is he saw uh, that difference very clearly. And it's the difference between the, the Heiliger Geist and the Zeitgeist. In other words, between the, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the age. That we, that as Chesterton said, we don't want a church that will move with the times. We don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And and that's exactly what, what Cardinal Ratzinger was teaching in the 70s and 80s, that the timelessness of the church, because it's timeless, in other words, eternal, it's all, also therefore timely. It's relevant to every generation. The church does not have to move with whatever the latest fads and fashions are. The, the thing that you can be sure about a fashion is it's going to be out of date soon. That's what fashions are. They, 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 anything up to date is going to be out of date. That which is timeless is always timely. And Cardinal Ratzinger understood that difference. And that's where he taught about something. He said there's a difference between the hermeneutic of continuity. In other words, that there's, there's a tradition in the church that's unchanging. The church essentially is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. And that's the same in the first century or the 21st century. Uh, I, and against that is the idea of the hermeneutic of discontinuity or rupture. The idea that, that, that somehow the church has to, has to abandon everything it's believed in the past in order to seem relevant to whatever happens to be fashionable in the age in which we happen to be living. And, and he saw that, that those that were claiming to, to speak and act for the spirit of Vatican II in the 1970s were actually advocates of abandoning the, uh, the teaching of Christ in order to follow the teaching of whatever happens to be politically uh, or, or ideologically or philosophically fashionable. And he saw the difference. And I think at the beginning of the show, you, you, you juxtapose the two words, clarity and charity. And that really is Pope Benedict's motto, I think, claritas et uh, caritas, clarity and charity, because he did 
uh, see things very clearly. He could explain them very clearly, but he always did it with love. And the way that you lay that out and explain it is fantastic, really brilliantly done. I want to continue to unpack that. We're going to take a break. Joseph Pierce is with us this hour. We are discussing his book, Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Timory, do you have a question about the life of Pope Benedict XVI or perhaps a story to share of how his work impacted your faith? one 914 is the number to call. We are live this hour taking your call. Stay with us. More when we come back here on Trending. Are you tired of educational options that are one-size-fits-all? Our sponsor, Colby Academy, offers the flexibility of both accredited online and traditional school-at-home options to fit the needs of your child. Visit RelevantRadio.com slash Colby. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. jpierce.co is the website for our guest, jpearce.co. He is Joseph Pierce, the director of book publishing at Augustine Institute and a renowned biographer with many critically acclaimed books about Shakespeare, Hilaire Balak, G.K. Chesterton, his own autobiography. It's called Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Radical Love. This hour, we are talking about the book, Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith. My name is Brooke Taylor, in for Timory, who is on maternity leave, blessedly, with her beautiful brand new baby girl, both daughters now, and her husband. Prayers appreciated for their continued time together and health and healing for her daughter. One triple eight nine one four nine one four nine is our studio line here to join the conversation. And before the break, Joseph, we were talking about the kind of chaos of the rollout of, of Vatican II, which in in some regards could would be expected, but to the degree with which uh, in the book you say vandalism kind of took place, I think was a bit unexpected. And you have, I think one of the most crucial chapters, in my opinion, is called The Spirit and the Anti-Spirit of Vatican II. And before the break, you touched on that a bit, but you begin there with an interview that is now known as the Ratzinger Report. Can you unpack that chapter a little bit for us? Yeah, well, the, the, the key thing was, and, and, and the book, the Ratzinger Report, again, actually published by Ignatius Press in, in, in English language. Um, the, the, this was when if it, the, the Cardinal Ratzinger, basically the second most powerful man in the church, um, bore witness to, to the madness that had happened in the church from the late 60s, uh, at least through to the, to the early 80s. The tide began to turn with the, with the election of um, uh, Pope, uh, Pope John Paul II in 1978. And I'm actually reminded, if I, I, can, if I could be uh, allowed a, a literary allusion as I'm a literature person, there's a, 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 some wonderful lines in G.K. Chesterton's poem, um, the, ba- uh, the Battle of the White Horse, uh, and it's when uh, the, 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 the pagan Vikings are invading uh, Catholic England, and it looks as if they're going to succeed. And then at the Battle of Ethandun, they're turned back. And there's a wonderful line, the high tide, King Alfred cried, the high tide and the turn. And basically, I think that is what the Rassig Report um, really heralded. 
uh, the, the papacy of St. John Paul II, uh, the, uh, the support of St. John Paul II by his right-hand man, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, which was made manifest in the Ratzinger Report, where he basically exposed um, the nonsense that had been carried out in the so-called name and spirit of Vatican II uh, in the post-conciliar years in the 1970s and showed that this was not what the, what the Council taught. It's not the teaching of the Church. It's, it's the hermeneutic of rupture and discontinuity. It's a revolution against the mystical body of Jesus Christ. And it was, it was, a, it was a breath of fresh air because... It, it, this brought the uh, the argument uh, in not just the mainstream, uh, but actually from the top down. That this, this it's quite obvious, you know, that we have to bear this in mind always. That there's no way that that, that Cardinal Ratzinger was ever doing anything in his position as prefect of the Congregation of the Faith uh, that, that that was contradicting the will of Saint John Paul II. It would have been unthinkable. It would have been an act of disloyalty. Uh, St. John Paul II would not have tolerated it. So, you know, that basically we have to see that this is the voice of uh, somebody who's already canonized, St. John Paul II, and someone who I honestly believe will be canonized, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI. These two, pe- these two men spoke as one with a unified voice of authority um, from the chair of Peter in, in the case of uh, John Paul, that what happened uh, in in the name of the so-called spirit, which was really the anti-spirit of Vatican II, uh, was uh, something which was contrary to uh, the teaching of uh, Christ and his church, and his church, which is the mystical body of Christ. I want to zero in on a few examples of what you're saying when you mentioned hermeneutics of rupture and the anti-spirit. One distinct feature about liturgical modernism, I'm reading this from the book, is its disdain for kneeling. If it's true, as indeed it is, that every knee should bend at the name of Jesus, it is surely perverse that modernism refuses to kneel or bow before the Lord. The removal of kneelers from churches is almost always a sign of spiritual apostasy. And so this is something from Pope Benedict that he wrote, the man who learns to believe learns also to kneel, and a faith or a liturgy no longer familiar with kneeling would be sick to the core. Where it has been lost, kneeling must be rediscovered, so that in our prayer we remain in fellowship with the apostles and martyrs, indeed in union with Jesus Christ himself. So because all sorts of different things were happening through and after you know, that time period, and you talk a little bit also about the altar cross being moved. I'm looking here as well, another example moving the altar cross to the side to give an uninterrupted view of the priest is something I regard as one of the truly absurd phenomena of recent decades, wrote Ratzinger. Is the cross disruptive during Mass? Is the priest more important than the Lord? This mistake should be corrected as quickly as possible. The Lord is the point of reference. He is the rising sun of history. And I think what's really beautiful is that it's a it's a wonderful illustration that it's it's really not ours, I, I suppose, to um, to change and tamper with. And you have these two examples of some believing, the progressives perhaps, that the church is like a pilgrim moving through and with and changing, and then others believe it's a rock. And I'm not sure if I'm describing that right, but is that the gist between the two thoughts? Well, I think it's, 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 I think it's a dangerous dichotomy. The church is a rock. Jesus Christ is the rock. St. Peter is the rock, uh, sanctioned by Christ, 
Um, but also the church moves through the uh, moves through the centuries. But the point is, the pilgrim is the same person. Right, the pilgrim doesn't change, doesn't become a different person uh, in the first century to the second century to the third century. The person is Jesus Christ. The church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. So, yes, the church is a pilgrim, um, but it's a pilgrim who is Christ. Um, so there, there, there's no question that, we, that if we talk about the church being a rock, yes, it is. Being a pilgrim, yes, it is. But it's not a pilgrim who changes with the fads and the fashions of the time, changes its mind. It's not a person in that sort of prideful, uh, fallible, uh, all too human sense of the word. It's, it's a person in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and, and he's the pilgrim that leads us through the centuries, and we are called to follow him. And what you've just said there, I mean, Cardinal Rathenker's words, you know, the, 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 the fact that the, the, the crucifix, the cross is moved from the altar so that we can see the priest. Worse than that, in many churches, the tabernacle, was removed from the center behind the altar and replaced with a throne for the priest. And the priest sat where the tabernacle once was. I mean, this is not just an absurdity, it's an abomination. And, and, and one of the phrases that, 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 that Cardinal Rasky uses, the need to turn towards the Lord, to orientate ourselves so that priest and people are facing the same way towards Christ. The priest is not the star of the show in the Mass, right? He is leading the people in prayer to the Lord. I can't find that quote, but I um, there it is. The fact that we find Christ in the symbol of the rising sun is the indication of a Christology-defined eschatology. Praying toward the East means going to meet the coming Christ. The liturgy turned toward the East affects entry, so to speak, into the procession of history toward the future, the new heaven and the new earth which we encounter in Christ. It is the prayer of hope, the prayer of the pilgrim as he walks in the direction shown us by the life, passion, and resurrection of Christ. And so reminding us that the Second Vatican Council had said nothing about turning toward the people, he, Ratzinger, asserted whenever possible, we should definitely take up that apostolic tradition of facing the East, ad orientum, in the building of churches and in the celebration of liturgy. Now, these still really induce a lot of controversy, these comments. And so I suppose a question for you as a lay person, perhaps going into a church and there is no tabernacle in sight or the altar cross has been moved or the kneelers have been taken out. What would you suggest? Is that something that a lay person should say to the priest or should she, you know, they immediately write to the bishop or just let things continue to unfold? Because around the world and through different churches and traditions, we may find very vastly different things. Well, I, I, I think that there is a Catholicity and a universality about the Church. In fact, uh, I, I did a magazine called the St. Austin Review, and, and back in 2005, shortly before he became Pope, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger gave us the, the world-exclusive English language rights to, a, to a, an essay he wrote on Catholicity and universality. And the, the, the point is that the, the, the Church is at one in one voice, and there should not be a multiplicity of approaches to divine liturgy. Now, of course, there are you know, Eastern rites and there are ancient rites, but there's nonetheless a norm. And certainly part of that norm, which is the norm in all of those rites, including, including the Eastern rites, is ad orientum, that we all face towards the Lord. Churches were oriented in the way they were built. The mass, the, the, the altar was always in the east of, of the church. The church was built around an east-facing altar so that the people would be facing east for the rising of the sun. This orientation was part of the very celebration of the liturgy. And so what Cardinal Rassinger is doing is merely calling us back to what the church has always done 
and which the Vatican Council did not say we should stop doing. Uh, you know, there, there was a revolution that happened in the 1970s where things were, that were stopped doing, that we stopped doing, was, that was never sanctioned by the, by the Second Vatican Council. It's never been sanctioned by the teaching authority of the church, by the magisterium. It was just done as some sort of revolutionary thing. And we've been, we've been lumped, if you like, with, with, with the de facto consequences. So should we do something about that? Yes, we need to do we need to act with clarity and charity. And I do actually believe that we have liberty as Catholics to go to liturgies that are reverent. So I think we should vote with our feet. I think we should shake the dust from our sandals. If we're going to a liturgy, which is basically sacrilegious in its lack of reverence, in its lack of kneeling, in its lack of seeing the, 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 the blessed sacrament and the presence of Christ as being at the center of the mass, if, if those things are not there, we should go somewhere where they are, if, if it's possible. And I re obviously I realize that some people might find themselves in circumstances where they can't do this. But where they can, they should go and vote with their feet. And I think this, this is a democracy, if you like, of, uh, of, of the laity, where you will find that the, that the, the churches that, that where, where the liturgy is, is uh, celebrated most faithfully are the, those that are also the, that are actually thriving. Where, and, and for instance, the, the, the church that I go to in South Carolina, um, you know, the, the, the priest brought back kneelers, he brought back the altar rail, um, the, all masses are said ad orientum. Uh, and now what I find at the mass we go to on Sundays, first of all, the numbers have increased exponentially. The, the, the church is much more full than it used to be. And it's full, uh, the, the demographic is such, many, many young people, many, many young couples many, many young couples with many, many young children, and many of those young couples are converts to the faith. Now, this is the vibrant evangelical church that we should be longing for and working for. And the, the courageous priest at the parish I go to put the principles that Cardinal Ratzinger uh, was, was teaching and preaching in the spirit of the liturgy and other places into practice, and we're seeing the fruits of the spirit, the authentic spirit of the church, the Holy Spirit, and we're seeing in the liturgy, and we're seeing in, in people responding, uh, and, and the numbers I've just been talking about, and the youth, the young people. Uh, this, this is the future. I think, too, in the spirit of Ratzinger's education, the classical education model as well. I know we've talked about it. We've had interviews about that as well, but you're also seeing this pocket of, um, of renewal in that regard and and where it is embraced. So that's a beautiful sign of hope for sure. Uh, I, we have to take a break in a few minutes. We're speaking with Joseph Pierce. His book is Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith. And one of the things I've come to appreciate more recently is his mildness. And again, that's not weakness. It's actually strength through great intellect and sanctity. And Archbishop Georg Gansvein, his personal secretary, said that he never got angry or lost his temper, and that the more Benedict was challenged, the quieter in words he became, how powerfully that had such a benevolent effect on those around him. And he shared a story of how during a meeting with bishops and cardinals, and this was during his time as prefect of Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, that the topic got very heated, and there were quickly rising temperatures in terms of content and tone. And in this simple, quiet manner, he was able to diffuse the aggressive nature, and he said, the arguments are either convincing or not convincing. The tone can either be disturbing or helpful. So I suggest we help each other to take down the tone and strengthen the arguments. 
And I thought, I need to remember that as a mom (laughs) with my kids and with everyone, but how brilliant and simple and direct. And it seems that statement was really emblematic of his style and his sanctity. And when you think of the forces of secularism and relativism and Marxism and atheism, humanism, all of these forces out to take down the church, it really is remarkable to see how he carried so much of it with strength and mildness. There's a paradox there, and it's a wonderful one. It's connected to what we've been talking about, the clarity and charity, uh, is that if you, if you have reason on your side, and of course the Catholic Church has always taught that faith and reason are inextricably united, it's an indissoluble marriage, it's one flesh. But if you have reason on your side, right, you have clarity on your side, then you don't have to get angry. You don't have to get violent. You can just be rational and you can be, you can show that clarity with love, with love. And so that's why your sanctity, um, shows itself in both courage and mildness, courage and meekness, fortitude and meekness. And this is the mark of the true saint. And, and, and we see it in Ratzinger. We see the mark of the true saint. You know, Chesterton said of his relationship with his brother, we were always arguing, but we never quarreled. Now, a quarrel is, 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 is about winning. An argument is about getting closer to the truth. Uh, and you know, and, and we're, 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 we're both parties in the argument are serving truth itself to try to get closer to it. And that's what uh, Ratzinger embodies. He argued, he never quarreled. For the last hour, we've been examining the life, the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI, this remarkable servant of Christ, and whom George Cardinal Pell says is the best theologian of all the popes. That quote is emblazoned on the front of the book, Benedict XVI's Defender of the Faith. The book's author, Joseph Pierce, is joining us. His website is jpierce.co. If you would like to join the conversation, call us. The studio line is one 914 9149. We will be right back with more here on Relevant Radio. I'm Brooke Taylor. You're listening to Trending. Our studio line is sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. Learn how our sponsor can support your family with health insurance during 2023 open enrollment. Visit RelevantRadio.com slash Forrester. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to the show. The Family Rosary. I'm just looking at the time about 15 minutes away with Father Rocky. My name is Brooke Taylor. Happy to be with you filling in today as Timory is on maternity leave. Mom and baby were in the NICU earlier this week. I'm happy to share they are home now, hopefully catching up on sleep. Your prayers are so appreciated. And I know periodically she's been posting on social media on her Instagram. So we will keep you posted. And in the meantime, we are holding down the fort. We have so much to talk about to celebrate the solemnity of the epiphany. Last night in our house, we got out the Maria von Trapp book. I highly recommend this for everyone, all Catholic families. It's called Around the Year and really takes you through the richness of the liturgical year with hymns and recipes and wonderful reflections. And so we in our house 
had the cake and the crown and over the weekend we'll have the blessed water and chalk the doors, which is a long tradition. And Joseph, I wanted to ask you as well on your website. I know you just published a blog post with an epiphany reflection. Can you plug that? Uh, well, I can't remember what I said. <laughs> well, I think it was two poems. It was T.S. Eliot and was it Chester? Oh, we were talking about epiphany. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I talked about um, uh, the twelfth day of twelfth day of Christmas, which is actually twelfth night, the night before Epiphany, and that was a, a wonderful poem by uh, Hilaire Belloc called Twelfth Night, and 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 the, the story of it basically it's a, it's a wonderful short poem, is that um, uh, that Belloc that you know, the the poet is in the uh, the wood, the middle of the woods at night, it's dark, there's a full moon. And there's this company go past. You might, might, might think of elves in the Lord of the Rings or whatever. This mysterious ghostly company passes. And he notices that they're not casting any shadow in the moonlight. And so he gets scared, right? They're ghosts. And he refuses to walk with them. And as they proceed on, he hears them singing some lines he used to know, glorious in excelsis domino. And then he sees a light in the middle of the wood. And he realizes that they were on their way. Uh, to the Holy Family and, 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 and to the Nativity of Christ. And, and the poem finishes with, uh, if only I had gone with them, I might have come to Bethlehem. And it's a wonderful poem. And then the other poem is by T.S. Eliot, The Journey of the Magi, which is Eliot's imagining of putting himself in the shoes, if you like, and the minds of the three wise men are on, on their way to, to Bethlehem. And then, and then the impact of seeing the Christ child and how that changes their life um, and how it changes their understanding of wisdom and philosophy and understanding that self-sacrifice and death is part of, uh, uh, as part of life and, and, and dying to ourselves is necessary to, to, to living. Uh, so you know, these lessons that the wise men learn. So yeah, these two wonderful poems are, were my meditation that I, that I posted on my own website. And that's jpierce.co. We can find them there, right? Yes, and jpierce.co is my own, my own website, my own blog. I post lots, lots of good things on there. I post three new podcasts every week uh, and other things. Very impressive. The volume <laughs> that you turn out things is, is a gift. It's a gift to the church. We are also, this hour, focusing on Benedict XVI, your book, the subtitle Defender of the Faith, His Life, His Legacy. And I want to talk about his election to the papacy at the age of 78. We just have under 10 minutes left. But also, Pat has been patiently holding on the line from Minneapolis, and I know that she wanted to offer a thought about reading Pope Benedict. Are you with us, Pat? And I'm so enjoying hearing um, Dr. Pierce, and I've heard him on EWTN. He's awesome to listen to. I really love his knowledge. It's just incredible. Thank you that he's on. Um, I also believe that I was reading Benedict's, and he's quite brilliant, but he also is very readable compared to John Paul II. And I was reading um, Jesus of Nazareth, um, part of that. I think there's three parts to that. And at some point, I was so impressed with what he wrote, I copied it down on the back of a holy card of him, a quote from page 279. And it says, man lives on truth and on being loved, on being loved by the truth. Just awesome and deep. And I think that's what you're talking about, charity and clarity. But when we know we're being loved by the truth, and then all that Regensburg stuff, you know, talking about dictatorship of relativism and how important that, I didn't think, I don't remember thinking about being loved by the truth, 
But that's the quote, and it touched mm-hmm. me, and I think it might touch others as well. I'd like his comments on that. Beautiful. Thank you, Pat. Yeah, but basically, Pat, thanks very much for that. It really does uh, uh, sum, sum up very succinctly what we've been saying, uh, the essence of, first of all, the church, the essence of the Trinity, and the essence of, uh, of uh, uh, John Paul, sorry, uh, um, Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, um, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is this, this, is this juxtaposition, this coming together in one place of clarity and charity. You know, that that we are, we are loved by the truth because the truth is love. Uh, you know, that God is both logos, right, the word, the truth, ratio, reason, but God is also love himself, love itself. Um, it, it is caritas and claritas. It is uh, love and reason, love and truth coming together. They are ultimately uh, one in the Godhead. And that's why, you know, we are being loved by truth, because the truth is love. And, and, and again, thanks for quoting that by, 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 by uh, Ratzinger. You, I mean, you're completely correct. That's the whole point, is that he is so easy to read. Uh, he's profound, but also very, very digestible. And it's interesting that, we, that this focus is on truth, because that is his Episcopal motto from the third letter of John, co-worker of the truth. He says, in today's world, the theme of truth has all but disappeared because truth appears to be too great for man, and yet everything falls apart if there is no truth. So a fantastic spotlight on what you already identified, Pat, which was his Episcopal motto. And I know we just have a few minutes left, Joseph. There's so much that I wanted to get to. His election to the papacy at the age of 78, now even with the Requiem Mass speculation over did his wishes, uh, were they honored? And all of the, in I don't want to say infighting, but we are a family, so that's the reality. But really, I want to conclude with perhaps a message for us here and for everyone. The Vatican released a final spiritual will of Pope Benedict XVI. We talked about it earlier this week. It was written in 2006, and it's really quite beautiful. You can find it on the trending Twitter feed. But in it, he talks about living through 60 years of theology and biblical studies and how he's witnessed the rise of seemingly unshakable ideas like existentialism, moral relativism, fascism, Marxism, and their their utter collapse. And he wrote extensively on these counterfeit ideologies, but he also had a warning, like Cardinal Wazinski, about the decadence of the West and how that also can be very deadly and dangerous. And we're seeing that now. Can you maybe take us into that point and a note of hope as we conclude? Yeah, well, the, the most important thing, of course, is that all of these things have their roots ultimately uh, in pride. Uh, we, the, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, um, that the, the battle between good and evil takes place in each individual human heart. So there's a civil war that goes on in each individual human heart. And that's between good and evil. It's between the homo viator, we're called to be, the homo viator, traveling man, pilgrim man, man on the quest for heaven. Uh, that, that's who we're called to be. That's who we're made to be. We're made in the image of God, homo viator. But we're also homo superbus, broken man who tries to make himself God, who refuses the pilgrimage, who refuses the journey. And that war goes on in each individual human heart, which means it goes on in each individual human society in every generation from Adam and Eve onwards. And a lot of these ideologies are about self-empowerment. Now, the, 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 the ideology of the modern decadent West is about self-empowerment. You can be what you want to be. But, but Nietzsche was about self-empowerment. 
Nietzsche was the inspiration for the Nazis. You know, um, uh, most of these uh, ideologies are, are um, the product of, well, pride theologically and enlightenment philosophy, which is a rejection of, uh, of the teaching of the church. Uh, and that, that spawned the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the rise of the Nazi Party, the Chinese Communist Party, the killing fields of Cambodia, and then the killing fields of the abortion mills of this country, which is the same decadent self-empowerment. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot in diff, There's a lot in common between these different types of um, secular fundamentalist forms of self-empowerment, and it's all summed up actually in the words that uh, that, that Cardinal Ratzinger said uh, uh, just before his election to the papacy when he coined the phrase the dictatorship of relativism. That relativism leads to totalitarianism because they don't believe in truth and therefore they will crush anybody who does believe in truth. In the beginning of the book, you offer an apology, both meant to be kind of a confession of the enormity of the subject matter, but then as well as a defense of Pope Benedict XVI. And you've done a brilliant job, not only of doing that, but somehow keeping it well under 200 pages, which is very impressive because for the last week with five kids and much to do, I was able to read the entire book, highlight it, and certainly go back again. It's it's profound because Pope Benedict XVI was profound, and it is a work that is a treasure to our faith. So I thank you. And again, the personal website is jpierce.co, so we can visit you there. The book, Benedict XVI, Defender of the Faith, is available at Tan Books and just basically general booksellers. Is that right, Joseph? Yes, anywhere that sells good books, uh, hopefully will also sell that book. Okay, well, thank you for your time and blessed epiphany. There are so many, I think we, this is our, our fourth or fifth interview, <laughs> so many different subject matters. We were blessed that you actually joined us, I believe, the day or the day after Queen Elizabeth died and you being an Englishman were able to really offer some beautiful insight there. And in all you do, um, it is it is so well appreciated. So God bless you, blessed Epiphany, and uh, for your family as well. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and God bless you, and happy Epiphany to you too. Thank you. As we wrap up the show dedicated to the life, the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI, I thought we'd just have a few minutes that it would be fitting to end with an excerpt from an address that he gave in Cologne, Germany. It was on World Youth Day, August 2005. It's actually a portion of it featured in this book, but he was talking about the Magi as we celebrate the solemnity of the Epiphany. And he says, in our pilgrimage with the mysterious Magi from the East, we have arrived at the moment which St. Matthew describes in his gospel with these words, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Outwardly, their journey was now over. They had reached their goal. But at this point, a new journey had began for them, an inner pilgrimage, which changed their whole lives. Their mental picture of the infant king they were expecting to find must have been very different. God does not enter into competition with earthly powers of this world. He does not marshal his divisions alongside other divisions. God does not send 12 legions of angels to assist Jesus in the Garden of Olives. He contrasts the noisy and ostentatious power of this world with the defenseless power of love which succumbs to death on the cross and dies ever anew throughout history. Yet it is the same love which constitutes the new divine intervention that imposes, opposes injustice and ushers in the kingdom of God. These wise men must become men of truth, justice, and goodness, and forgiveness, and mercy. 
They will no longer ask, how can this serve me? Instead, they will ask, how can I serve God's presence in this world? A beautiful message. And may we too have what Pope Benedict XVI calls the courage of nonconformity to conform ourselves to Christ and bring him the greatest gifts, which is ourselves, our soul, wholly and completely. God bless you. My name is Brooke Taylor. The Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky is next. Blessed Epiphany to you. Happy birthday, St. Joan of Arc. Until next time.